Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of the very best commentaries of the week by your favorite Rebels. I'm your host, David Menzies. Well, for those who embrace freedom, last Friday was a shocking day indeed. A 24-year-old hooligan attempted to murder author Salman Rushdie at a public event in New York. But why? Rahil Raza will try to make sense of it all. And say hello to our newest Rebel News reporter. That would be Katie Davis-Court, based in Seattle, Washington. And what a story she has to tell. You see, Katie first got involved in journalism when city council and the mainstream media in Seattle decided to basically completely ignore the violent antics of Antifa and Black Lives Matter as they laid siege to our city. Katie shall explain all. And letters, we get your letters, we get your letters every minute of every day, and I'll share some of your letters about my monologue last week regarding how the World Economic Forum wants us to surrender our cars in the name of climate change or something. Sorry, Claude Schwab, it just ain't gonna happen. And, but hey, Mr. Schwab, nothing's stopping you from giving up your chauffeur-driven limo or trading in your filet mignon for a cricket sandwich. I think that's called leading by example, which ain't gonna happen either. Those are your rebels now, let's round them up. Those who hadn't heard the name Salman Rushdie before have heard it now, as it's all over the news. Millions of people across the globe know that British Indian author Salman Rushdie was brutally attacked in New York on Friday, the 12th of August. Rushdie was scheduled to give a lecture at Education Center Chautauqua Institution in southwestern New York when a man ran up to the stage and attacked him with a knife in the neck and abdomen. Police detained the assailant named Hadi Matar, 24, from Fairview, New Jersey. So who is Salman Rushdie? He is a literary giant. His famous words resonate with us today. He said, what is freedom of expression? Without the freedom to offend, it ceases to exist. We are grateful that Rushdie is recovering, but how long before some other mad jihadi attacks him? We at Rebel News condemn the attack on Salman Rushdie and wish him a speedy recovery while showing our solidarity by starting a petition to support freedom of expression. Please do sign the petition. In 2007, Rushdie was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II for his service to literature, making him Sir Ahmed Salman Rushdie. He has won five Booker Prizes. Rushdie pushed the margins of culture by addressing issues in his writings which were considered taboo. He uses a wry sense of humor, magical realism, and his own Indian culture to explore ideas from identity, history, and politics to religious themes. He is a former president of the literary and human rights organization, PEN America. He is a vocal and active defender of freedoms. In an interview with Deutsche Welle, he said, 
we must defend our valuable and hard-won freedom. We have to fight for it if need be. In 1988, Rushdie published his now infamous novel, The Satanic Verses. All hell broke loose in the Muslim world when the late Iranian leader Ayatollah Khomeini accused the author of blasphemy and in 1989 issued a fatwa, a religious edict against him, putting a bounty on his head, which according to some reports, amounts to $3.3 million today. All over the Muslim world, especially in places like Pakistan, there were explosive rallies and calls to kill Rishti. Ironically, if you ask the protesters whether they had read satanic verses, you would find that most had not. It was a mob action, but violent and angry. In 1991, two translators of the book were stabbed, one fatally. You may ask, why did this happen? Khomeini wanted to attract political attention, and Rushdie became a convenient scapegoat. This was a time when we Muslim reformers saw the clear distinction between Islam and Islamism, which is political Islam, because Khomeini was using this as a purely political move. However, it picked up traction, and soon Rushdie had to go into hiding, while Scotland Yard provided security for him. In 2008, he moved to the United States. From a literary point of view, Rushdie had opened a Pandora's box by writing in satanic verses a scenario that was considered blasphemous. In 1998, Iranian President Mohammad Khatami rescinded the fatwa, but the harm had been done. We will kill you. We obey the Imam Khomeini the Great. Allah. He could not put the genie back in the bottle. For those who care about freedom, August 12th was a dark day. That's when British Indian author Salman Rushdie was brutally knifed in New York. Rushdie was scheduled to give a lecture at the Education Center at the Chautauqua Institution when a crazed man ran up to the stage and attacked Rushdie with a knife, stabbing him in the neck and abdomen. Hadi Matar of Fairview, New Jersey, was arrested and charged with attempted murder. It was a shocking display of violence, and in truth, one of the most disturbing elements of this attack is Matar's age. He's only 24, meaning that he wasn't even alive when the controversy erupted over the publication of the satanic verses in the first place. And yet somehow this would-be assassin was motivated to take someone's life for the alleged crime of writing a book that some in the Muslim world consider to be offensive to Islam. How sad, how infuriating, how disturbing is that? And joining me now for more on this shocking incident is Rahil Raza. Rahil, thank you so much for coming on Rebel Roundup. And I gotta tell you, do you share uh, my surprise that the fact that the age of this would-be assassin, only 24, not even alive when Khomeini uh, issued that fatwa back in 1989, and yet somehow this person has been, I guess, indoctrinated to go out and try to carry out first-degree murder. 
You know, David, um, it is shocking, of course, but not entirely surprising. Mm. I mean, since 9-11, we have been talking and warning about the dangers of brainwashing young people. Yes. And, you know, here is a pure example. Uh, when you look at it, as you say, he wasn't even born when the fatwa was given. So it tells you of the level of the brainwashing. It yeah. tells you of the level of the radicalization that a young man born in USA went for a, a visit to Lebanon and according to his own mother, came back radicalized. Yes. So people from, you know, thousands of miles away are able to push his buttons. The question that we have to ask and, and our security agencies and our law enforcement and our leaders is how many more Hadi Matars are there that we don't know about? You know, and that's a good point too, um, Rahil, the fact that he was born in the United States of America. I mean, I think if you're in a developed world democracy, life is probably pretty good. I don't know anything about this character, but he's probably not languishing in poverty. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow he was motivated to go out and carry out this uh, atrocious act. I don't even know if he has read the satanic verses. You said in your commentary, so many of the people that we saw from yesterday decade writing in the streets, they never read it. It's even been reported that Ayatollah Khomeini himself hadn't read it. This is baffling to me, Rahil. Well, you know, you have to understand the mindset and the ideology of the Islamists. And mm -hmm. let me cl clarify that Islamists are those who are using Islam for a purely political motive. Yes. You know, there's no spirituality in it. It is purely political. And they're using it for subversive agendas. Yeah. So you have to understand their thinking and their ideology to appreciate what is unfolding. Now, I hope that what is unfolding is a lesson for people who are looking at this. You know, I and every time I've spoken out in the last 20 years, I've been called a fear monger. But <laughs> invariably, some of the things that we Muslim reformers have talked about have come true because we have been warning of the signs and connecting the dots. So I would be called a fear monger again, but if I tell you that I believe that at least 40% of the Muslim communities are Islamized, you know, they have leanings towards mm -hmm. Islamist ideology. Now, this doesn't mean that they're going out, they're going to go out and be violent, yeah. because it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. Mm. And when young people are brainwashed into believing that they're doing this for God and that they're doing this, they are going to find a place in heaven and that they can give their own lives and they will, you know, become angels and have perhaps wishful thinking 72 virgins at their beck and call. It's all a bunch of garbage, but yes. they believe it. It's, it's staggering. And, you know, one of the aspects we have to look at um, Raheel is um, the reaction around the world. And I thought one of the most disturbing reactions was in Pakistan. There is a journalist, Ali Wakar. He is for, he broadcasts for Pakistan's English language, Dawn News Network. And he stated that Matar is, quote, a young freedom fighter for Uma's dignity, end quote. I mean, this to me is almost as shocking as the knife attack. I saw that. As you know, I am from Pakistan. Yes. I follow the news there. Uh, it was very disturbing, very concerning. I saw the celebration, the jubilation. 
And I waited for at least one organization, even in North America, one Muslim organization to show compassion, regardless of the religious affiliation, just to show compassion for a 75 year old man who nearly died. Yes. That's all I'm asking for. And what? I, and a week later, have we seen any? No. What, what is behind that, Raheel? Oh, they won't, because this, I mean, look at the date, 1998 was when Satanic Verses was published. 1989, the fatwa against Salman Rushdie was given by Khomeini. Maybe it will help you to understand that in uh, traditional Islam, there is no formalized clergy. The concept of formalized clergy does not exist either in our holy book, the Quran, or through the teachings of the Prophet mm -hmm. Muhammad. But if you look around you, especially in the Shia faith, now Hadi Matar was following the Shia faith. Mm -hmm. And in the Shia faith, of which Khomeini is also a part, they have the ayatollahs who behave like they are divinely appointed. Mm -hmm. and. These people, the, the masses, have been brainwashed to believe that whatever the mullah, whatever the ayatollah, whatever the clergy says, is, is a divine message and set in stone. And if they don't do it, they'll burn in hell. You know, it, it, it's staggering, Rahil. And I mean, I, I'm wondering if the lack of condemnation is due to the fear factor. They don't want repercussions. I mean, uh, back when the Danish cartoons were published, I think around 2006, if memory serves me, um, you remember that the, you know, the world's media, with the exception of a few media outlets, Ezra's Western Standard, mm -hmm. didn't dare publish uh, that, yes. those, that offensive cartoon. Even on CNN, they would blue dot it <laughs> like it was pornography or something yeah, like yeah. that. And I think it was Mark Stein, he said something very profound. We blew it. It should have been every single media outlet from the local town grocery flyer to the New York Times should have reprinted those cartoons because for the amount of dynamite the jihadis would have to buy, it would bankrupt them, right? <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, but the point is we should have taken a principled and strong stance. And I think basically out of fear itself, um, you had the biggest media organizations on the planet sitting this one out, and I think it was shameful. It's more than that. It's yeah. political correctness. This mm, is not the yes. first time that they washed the hands of anything where they might be targeting the Muslim communities. The Muslims, of course, will never condemn this attack because yeah. for them, he is the enemy and they want him dead. Mm. You know, so that's simple and straightforward. And you can, whether or not they're jihadis, whether they're uh, moderate Muslims, you know, except for the Muslim reform movement of which I am a part, right. no one has made a peep. So, uh, but for, for the rest of the non-Muslim, our governments, our leaders, they are terrified to touch anything that has to do with Islam or Muslims with a 10-foot pole for fear of our biggest issue, Islamophobia. And, you know, and, and Rahil, it, it's not a two-way street. You can uh, do a, uh, a mockery of Christianity, such as put a cross, you know, in a jar of urine, mm -hmm. and you'll probably get a, a government grant uh, to assist <laughs> in that artistry. So it, it's very odd. It's, it's not a, a two-way street. And yet the problem is this is not a one-off. You know, when we look at uh, Salman Rushdie, it was recently reported there's a woman in India, Napur Sharma, I don't know if you know this yes, case, yes. but she's now in hiding. 
she's now in a life of hiding yes. because she dared to read from an Islamic text about the Prophet Muhammad's marriage. And now there's a fatwa on her. Yes. I mean, I guess, Raheel, is there any hope things are going to get reformed and that this religion, like any religion, like anything, is fair grounds for criticism? Well, the hope lies with us. We are the reformist Muslims. Uh, the hope lies with that. One thing I will say that, you know, um, within the, the uh, liberal Muslim community, if you want to call it that, and the intellectuals, there has been a lot of outreach mm. uh, from UK to Europe to North America, uh, much more than I thought. You know, so almost everybody came together and said, we have to say something. This is why I started that petition on Rebel News, because I want people to sign it, that we are protecting, protecting our basic freedom of expression, that, you know, we are prote protecting freedom of speech, uh, without which we don't exist. A hundred percent, Raheel. And by the way, where can our viewers go to sign that petition if they haven't already? I believe it's W. The URL is www.istandwithrushdi.com. Fantastic. Well, you know what, folks, it, it is well worth uh, putting your signature on there if you care about freedom. And um, Raheel, uh, let's hope Salman Rushdie does make a full uh, recovery. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think the ultimate dark perversity of this is that so many in the Islamic community say Islam is the religion of the of peace. But if you don't agree with that, or if you offend uh, our sensibilities, we're going to issue a fatwa, meaning we're going to kill you. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, is right across the board with all Muslims. I'm, I'm just talking about those who subscribe to political uh, Islamist beliefs. And again, um, I guess last word goes to you, Raheel. Um, do you see this getting worse in the years ahead or better? Especially since I think there's been a false belief that in the last two and a bit years with COVID, it's almost as though many people think that radical Islam has taken a holiday. I don't think it has. I don't think it has either. However, uh, I'm an optimist and there's always hope. Uh, when people say, I was going to tell you, when people say Islam is the religion of peace, I always re respond by saying it is a religion of peace as long as that peace is being practiced on a daily basis. Mm. As much as Muslims can, can practice peace, it's only then that it becomes a religion of peace. Other than that, uh, there are many more voices. There are many more people speaking out. Uh, there is, you know, Islam is a young religion, not that it is a justification, but it is younger than the other two. It's still going through its uh, regurgitations. Mm. If this issue of not having debate and discussion can be brought back, one of the most important things in the development of early Islam was the concept of ishtihad, which is debate and discussion. But that has been shut down. These days, there is no debate and mm. discussion. They'd rather kill than debate or discuss. If we can bring back the whole idea of debate and discussion, because what Salman Rushdie had mentioned in satanic verses, the so-called blasphemous part, is an idea that has floated around in the Muslim world. Mm. And there have been great thinkers and intellectuals and activists and, you know, apps, but they're scared. Yeah. See? Well, I'll tell you, Raheel, I want to thank you for being for you being so outspoken over the years and for your bravery, because it does take a degree of bravery. 
Thank you for coming on the My show. Pleasure. You Thank have you a great weekend. Me. And folks, if you can, please go to Raheel's petition. Put your name to it if you care about freedom. Uh, it's a very worthy cause worth protecting. That is for sure. More of Rebel Roundup coming up right after this. Thank you. and Black Lives Matter, the rights of 2020, they overthrew a six block radius of Seattle. It was hardly reported on by our local news in Seattle. And so that's when I kind of started getting my start. I started out as an independent reporter a little bit before the riots started because there wasn't a focus on the desecration of the city of Seattle by the hands of the progressive policies that have been enacted. And I said, why is there only one side being shared? So I went out and I started reporting the other side of the story, like what Rebel News does. And um, it is not being shared. So I'm excited to um, continue my work there. Well, the fact that you had that uh, contrarianism, that you were not afraid to tell the story that the mainstream weren't, is impressive. That's the essential character element to be a rebel. Are you willing to stand apart from the from the crowd? But physically, to film Antifa, I mean, they are by definition violent. They by definition in, in believe in shock tactics. They hide their identities. Um, they have this style, the black block, where they're indistinguishable. Yes. They all dress in black from head to toe. They are violent. They burnt cities and they would hurt you if they could. Now, you were very wise about how you went about it. But in my mind, it takes a little bit of courage to stand down what is really the brown shirts uh, of our age. Oh, I absolutely agree. And so when I started going out there in the beginning, they would they, they like to attack reporters because they consider people out there with uh, phones as cops. They think that cameras are cops. So they hate the police and uh, reporters go and they don't want their crimes to be filmed. So they I've actually been attacked by them a few times, not uh, any violent assaults, but they use intimidate intimidation tactics to silence who they believe um, is their opposition. So not only have they physically assaulted me, but they have come to my apartment and they know where I live. They have slashed my tires multiple times. And they have put flyers of me around my city. They've put flyers of my own family members around my city, all to try to intimidate me to not report on their actions. And I just think that it is insane that our city council, the Seattle City Council actually kind of supports them. They are pro Antifa. They are still using the phrase that you know, Antifa is, a, is an anti-fascist group. You know, there's no They're very fascist. If you just look at the definition of that word, they act like fascists. Can you imagine, folks, the city of Seattle essentially gets taken over by violent radicals, be they Antifa or BLM supporters, and the politicians support the thugs as opposed to the law-abiding constituents that they are supposed to be serving? As for those useful leftist idiots in the mainstream media, well, it's all a matter of nothing to see here, folks. Move along, move along. What a disgrace. It's unbelievable. And joining me now is the newest member of the Rebel News team, and that would be Katie Davis Court. Hey, Katie, welcome to Rebel Roundup. How you doing there? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of the team. Well, thank you for joining us today. And I got to tell you, uh, Katie, my blood was boiling when I saw the intimidation tactics you had to endure by those Antifa and BLM punks. But I guess I always look for the silver lining in things, Katie. And the good news is once you saw what happened to your city, once you saw uh, city councillors supporting these thugs, once you saw the mainstream media downplaying what was happening, you decided basically to become a citizen journalist. And here you are now on the Rebel News uh, team. Is that correct, my friend? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> correct. So Antifa, I actually got my start a little bit before anti the George Floyd riots of 2020 and Antifa started seizing cities and really partnered with Black Lives Matter and burned down Seattle for nearly nine months. And the reason why I got started was because the Seattle was really the center of the defund the police movement. And I noticed that we started electing Marxists and socialists to our city council. And the first thing that they started to do was introduce defunding of the police. And because I'm educated, I know that that's a Marxist tactic. And I went, why is no one speaking out on this? This is the United States of America. We don't welcome these type of policies in in our country. And so Seattle was really ground zero for that. And that's when I noticed no local media was really reporting on it. And so I went out, I started reporting on it. And then that's when really Antifa started building up their own presence here in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle and Portland, really the epicenter of Antifa. And I was so shocked that our local news wasn't reporting on these issues. And our own city council members, they make Antifa emboldened with their support. I mean, they one of our council members dresses up their own baby in an Antifa onesie. Oh and you have God. to think, yeah, it is just shocking. <clears throat> and so during George Floyd, like what you mentioned was they, the real insurrection happened in Seattle. It wasn't the January 6th Capitol riot in Washington, DC. It was when Antifa with black lives matter overthrew a huge six block radius of Seattle in the heart of downtown and created the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which our own city leaders helped them create and actually encourage. And they overthrew a police precinct. And that is really where Seattle is. It hasn't recovered since. We have a new mayor. He's trying, but we're still a, really a city in despair. You know, and you're so right, Katie. I, um, when it comes to Antifa, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, these are Marxist organizations, make no mistake. Yes. And they're following classical Marxism, i.e. tear down the status quo and then build it back up in a Marxist utopia, which, of course, never comes to fruition when you look at the communist countries around the world. They're hellholes, let's be honest. Yes. But, you know, when we focus on, the, you know, their... Um, impetus for this uh, riot and that uh, zone they created was all about defunding the police regarding an incident that happened all the way over in Minneapolis. But what I don't understand, Katie, take me through this. Say we defund the police, we get rid of the police forces uh, in America. When a bad guy does something really egregious to a victim, who do you call? I mean, have they even thought this through? 
Yeah, they want to move to community-led policing, and it doesn't work. They tried it in Chaz. They had their own armed guards, and it ended in death. It ended in rapes. It ended in property destruction and stolen property. It doesn't work. They want to send social workers out in place of police. But why this also would never work is we are – the Seattle is so corrupt that we have – Prosecutors that don't prosecute, which has led into, which has created, or essentially Seattle has become a lawless den of criminal lawlessness because the our justice system is a revolving door for criminals. They get away with um, committing as many crimes as they want. They go through the courts and they immediately get released because we don't have we don't hold our own criminals accountable, which is actually by design with these progressive policies. And, you know, Katie, tell our audience a bit about Seattle. I mean, I have to be honest, I was only in Seattle once. It was 1986. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that was a different world back then. It seemed way more normal. The whole world was more normal back then. I found it to be a, a charming, uh, very uh, you know picturesque city. But what I'm trying to get at is you've mentioned you've got these ultra leftists, even Marxists on city council. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Seattle citizens, I mean, can you paint them with that kind of brush? Is there's this support um, for this kind of anarchy and Also, how did these anarchists get elected in the first place? Right. You have to wonder. So you said you were here in the 1980s. Now, Seattle, Washington State implemented mail-in voting in the the 1980s, late 1980s. And we used to actually be run by Republicans, conservatives. Once we implemented this mail-in voting policies, we haven't elected a conservative to city council since mail-in voting happened. So you have to wonder what exactly is behind that. Obviously, that is a very deep investigation to get into. And I'm still working on it. But once you know, you speak out on it, everyone gets removed from their social media platforms. So they try to limit your speech. But I would say that the majority of Seattle are these far left progressives. And it's so interesting because we had the riots that lasted for nine months. Their own buildings were burned down, yet they are still electing these leaders into office because they are, the, this is the capital of virtue signaling. They will, they are ran by their, um, by their crazy wacky thoughts that everyone, if they vote differently for change, then they are racist or they are really playing into the narrative that um, all Republicans are bad and they will continue voting alongside these corrupt politicians all because Trump was elected as the president of the United States in 2016. So we will see what happens. But as lo- if they don't continue to wake up, then our city will not improve. Wow. So... Trump derangement syndrome still lingering on in the uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, I suppose. But you know what, Katie, one of the other angles, too, is, you know, the perverse hypocrisy of these groups uh, that have laid waste to your city. Black Lives Matter. Um, I don't understand 
how they go by that moniker when they go into neighborhoods where there are black owned businesses, small mom pa businesses, and they incinerate those businesses. They they create carnage uh, for black people. Antifa, as you know, that's a contraction of uh, anti and fascist, but they use the tools of fascism, intimidation, violence, arson, you name it. They're not anti-fa, they're simply fa for fascists. And yet they're tolerated by people on the left. I mean, I thought we're supposed to argue our points with words. I thought we're supposed to debate. How is it that these groups are so entitled to use violence, even against a lady like yourself, vandalizing your car, following you back to to your apartment. I'm trying to make sense of it all, Katie. How, why is there, I guess, this tolerance for these ultra-violent and fascist groups? Right. I wish I knew the answer to that. You know, you're right. They are absolutely the fascists. And so I will say that Black Lives Matter during whenever there is a rally, because Antifa, you know, they are all essentially white people. The, like 99% are white punks and Black Lives Matter. So they're actually becoming less, Antifa is becoming less popular in the United States because they tried to hijack the Black Lives Matter movement. And once they do that, they use violence, they destroy property, they attack people. And then that's, their actions are tied to any other left-wing cause. So whenever they show up, these left-wing groups actually will try to, to to denounce Antifa, but that that doesn't care. And, you know, I think that there is a two-tiered system of justice here in the United States right now. And I think what one of the tactics is for the Democrat politicians is to kind of support Antifa and the, vi- and the violence because they need chaos to further their progressive policies to really create a police state, which is what their goal is right now. No, I would agree with that, uh, Katie. I would argue even that Antifa is the unofficial militia of the Democrat Party um, in terms of carrying out their shenanigans. Uh, we're almost out of racetrack here. One last question. Um, like I like I said, it's um, our gain that you got into um, citizen journalism and we discovered you. And I know you're going to do some fantastic work for us, Katie. But in terms of being a Seattle resident, in terms of somebody who is not an ultra leftist, have you uh, considered moving? Is it that bad there? Or is there maybe does hope abound in Seattle that maybe there'll be a turnaround at some date? Right. You know, I'm a very positive person and I love Seattle. I've been here my whole life. My family's been here. But yes, I absolutely have considered moving. I have my apartment, but I also stay elsewhere a lot of the time because I don't like people knowing where I live, but I also don't want them to win and make them push me out of the city that I love and grew up in. And it is so awful. You mentioned coming here in the past and how we have mountains and oceans and it is really the most beautiful place in the country in my opinion and i would like to say there's hope but unfortunately things are going to get much much worse before they get any better so we'll see wow well katie you are a strong woman indeed uh you keep standing your ground we'll see how this plays out and once again welcome to rebel news you have a great weekend my friend thanks for having me on You got it. It was a pleasure. And that was Katie Davis-Gord.
from Seattle, Washington. Keep it here, folks. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. And here's the thing when it comes to the war on the car, now being headed up by the WEF and their various useful idiots in government and the mainstream media. This is a battle they will not win. This is a battle they cannot win. For millions of people, including yours truly, a car is not a mere conveyance akin to, say, a refrigerator or a dishwasher. No, a car is a freedom machine. Depending on the season, you enter the heated or air-conditioned cabin, you hit the accelerator, and you go straight to your destination while listening to your favorite tunes or talk radio. <laughs> What's not to love? As for public transit, well, you know, Elon Musk said it best five years ago, I think, quote, there is this premise that good things must be somehow painful. I think public transportation is painful. It sucks. Why do you want to get on something with a lot of other people that doesn't leave where you want it to leave, doesn't start where you want it to start, doesn't end where you want it to end, and it doesn't go all the time, it's a pain in the ass, end quote. And here's another thing that the WEFers and their useful idiots fail to recognize. We live in a car culture, be it art, movies, magazines, books, music, our love for the internal combustion engine abounds. Put another way, nobody, not even the globalists, write songs about solar panels and wind turbines. But when it comes to cars, well, let's sample a smattering of audio content from yesterdecade. We always take my car because it's never been beat and we've never missed yet with the girls we meet. What gold. Indeed, is there a greater pop culture manifestation of the American dream than the combination of cars plus rock and roll music? And yet, across the pond, we have Dr. Evil, or I'm sorry, I mean Klaus Schwab, wanting, you to, wanting to remove you from the driver's seat and put you where? In the back of some smelly bus? Um, no thanks. Similarly, cars are a staple when it comes to TV shows and movies. From futuristic rides to car chases, Hollywood has long had a love affair with the automobile. Check it out. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed.
You know, I don't think there's any drama to be had if the Cape Crusader had to get around Gotham City by taking public transit. In any event, coming after my beloved little Menzoid mobile is the final straw. And I'm so sorry, but it's simply not going to happen, Mr. Schwab and Mr. Tory and Mr. Trudeau. Indeed, to paraphrase that famous quote from the late, great Charlton Heston, you can have my steering wheel when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. Well, lots of response regarding my monologue from last week pertaining to the latest way the World Economic Forum plans to make our lives miserable. Yes, they want to take away our cars in the name of appeasing Mother Nature. Or is it Greta Thunberg? Jeez, give me a break already. Roboprops writes, Personal cars are the ultimate sign of freedom. They hate individual freedoms. Call me bastards that they are. Oh, so true, uh, Rob Props. This is not about environmentalism, but rather pursuing a Marxist agenda. And by, by the way, what is the greatest threat to the planet these days? Is it climate change or is it COVID-19? And if it is indeed the latter, isn't the car the most hygienic way to get around when it comes to, you know, social distancing, as opposed to, say, squeezing oneself into a jam-packed bus? Gee, whatever happened to follow the science? Friend of the King writes, WEF, yeah, okay, sure. I will share my car when you start to share your limos and jets, you hypocrites. Indeed, heck, I'll simply settle just for the chauffeur-driven limo in a trade. Alas, as much as I would, as I would love to globetrot around the world uh, like a typical WEFer, my beloved Prime Minister won't let me leave my own country. Northern Paladin writes, how about getting on China for creating 40% of the world's emissions? Oh, that's right. The WEF is on China's payroll. Well, it sure seems that way. And one thing is for sure. We all know how committed China is to the so-called green agenda these days, given the number of new coal plants this country continues to build on an annual basis. Meanwhile, China is increasingly controlling the world supply of those precious metals so needed for EV batteries. Does anyone else find this disturbing? Boxlore writes, I will resist the WEF at all costs until my death. I'm with you, Boxlore, as the saying goes, death before dishonor. Truthfinder55 Main writes, the WEF backwards is few. Is that not what they want? Fewer people, fewer cars, fewer energy, which leaves it for the few. These people must be stopped. Well, holy Riddler, great observation, Truthfinder. But they only want the great unwashed masses to downsize. Judging by their rides and their planes and their hotel suites, the WEFers are all about conspicuous consumption, but that's okay. They're special people, after all. And Breaky Joe writes, Well, as someone that doesn't even have a license, it's time I got me three vehicles, 
eat it close. Wow. Talk about the Barbara Streisand effect. Welcome to Club Car, Breaky Joe. You're going to love it. And try to get a car with a manual transmission while you still can. Happy trails to you, my friend. Well, that wraps up another edition of Rebel Roundup. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next week. And hey, folks, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. Good night. <laughs>